John, chapter 18, verses 19 through 40, verses 19 through 21. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. Burkett notes, Our Savior, being brought before Caiaphas the high priest, he examines him concerning his doctrine and his disciples, pretending him to be guilty of heresy and doctrine and sedition in gathering disciples and followers. Our Savior answers that as to his doctrine, he had not delivered it in holes and corners, but had taught publicly in the temple and synagogues and that in secret he had said nothing, that is, nothing contrary to what he delivered in public. Christ never willingly affected corners. He taught openly and propounded his doctrine publicly and plainly in the world, a convincing evidence that both he and his doctrine were of God. Learn hence, one, that it is not unusual for the best of doctrines to pass under the odious name and imputations of error and heresy. Christ's own doctrine is here charged. The high priest asked Jesus of his doctrine. Two, that the ministers of Christ, who have truth on their side, may and ought to speak boldly and openly. I spake openly unto the world. Truth blushes at nothing, except that it's being concealed. In secret, says Christ, have I said nothing. Verses 22 through 27. And when he had thus spoken... One of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas the high priest, and Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said therefore unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter had cut off, saith, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately the cock crew. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. How insolently and injuriously an officer strikes our Savior in this court of Judiature. One of the officers struck Jesus with the palm of his hand. What had the holy and innocent Jesus done to deserve these buffetings? He only made use of the liberty which their law did allow him, which was not to accuse himself, but to put them upon the proof of those accusations which were brought against him. But from this instance of our Savior's suffering, we learn that Christ did endure painful buffetings, ignominious and contemptuous usage, even from inferior servants giving his cheek to the smiters, to testify that shame and reproachful usage which was deserved by us, and to sanctify that condition to us whenever is allotted for us. Observe, too, the meek and gentle reproof which the Lord Jesus gives to this rude officer. He doth not strike him dead upon the place, nor cause that arm to wither which stretched forth against the Lord's anointed, but only lets him know that there was no reason for a striking of him. Where note, that though our Savior doth not revenge himself, yet he vindicates himself and defends himself both with law and reason. If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? 
Hence we learn, one, that we are not literally to understand the command, Matthew 5, of turning the cheek to him that smites us. For Christ himself did not this, but defends the innocency of his words. Two, that to stand up in defense of our own innocency is not contrary either to the duties of patience and forgiveness or to the practice and example of our Lord Jesus. Note three, that when the soldier had struck Christ upon one cheek, he did not turn the other to him also, according to Matthew 5.39, which evidently shows that that precept, if they smite thee on one cheek, turn the other also, commands only this, that rather than take revenge, we should bear a second injury. Christians ought rather to suffer a double wrong than to seek a private revenge. Christianity obliges us to bear many injuries patiently rather than to avenge one privately. But though it binds up our hands from private revenge, yet it doth not shut our mouths from complaining to public authority. Christ's own practice here expounds the precept elsewhere, Matthew 5.39. For he complains here of the officer's injustice in smiting him before the judiciary, and challenges the man to bear witness of the evil. Observe lastly how our Lord was not only buffeted, but bound, and sent bound from Annas to Caiaphas, from Caiaphas to Pilate, from Pilate to Herod, and from Herod to Pilate again. And all this on foot through the streets of Jerusalem, from one end of the city to the other, partly to render his passion more public, being made a grazing stock to the world, and a spectacle both to angels and men, and his condescending to go bound from one high priest to another, and from one tribunal to another, teaches his people what delinquents they were before the tribunal of God, and what they deserve by reason of sin, even a sentence of eternal condemnation at the tribunal of the just and holy God. Verse 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, and it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Burkett notes, there were two courts of judicature which our blessed Savior was brought before and condemned by. One, the ecclesiastical court, or Sanhedrin, in which the high priest sat as judge. Here he was condemned to death for blasphemy. Two, the civil court, or judgment hall, where Pontius Pilate, a Roman governor, sat judge, who, because he was a Gentile, they would not go into his house, lest they should be defiled for they accounted it a legal pollution to come into the house of a Gentile. Where observe the notorious hypocrisy of these Jews. They scrupled the defiling of themselves by coming near the judgment hall where Pilate sat, but make no scruple at all to defile themselves with the guilt of that innocent blood which Pilate shed. When persons are overzealous for ceremonial observations, they are oftentimes too remiss with reference to moral duties. They brought him to the judgment hall, but they themselves went not in, lest they should be defiled. Verses 29 and 30. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. Burkett notes. Observe here, one, how Pilate humors these Jews in their superstition. They scruple to go into the judgment hall to him. He therefore goes out to them and demands what accusation they had against Christ. They charge him here only for being a malefactor or an evildoer in general. But elsewhere, Luke 23, they particularly accuse him, one, 
for perverting the nation, two, for forbidding to pay tribute to Caesar, three, for saying that he himself was Christ a king, all which was filthy calumny, yet Christ underwent the reproach of it without opening his mouth, teaching us that when we lie under calumny and unjust imputation, to imitate him who opened not his mouth, but committed his cause to him that judges uprightly. Verses 31 and 32. Then Pilate said unto them, Take ye he, and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Burkett notes, The Jews, being now under the power of the Romans, though they had a power of judging and censoring criminals in smaller matters, yet not in capital cases. They could not pronounce a sentence of death upon any person, say some. They might and did, say others, punish blasphemers by stoning them to death. But then their sentence is to be ratified by the Roman power. Accordingly, here they had their ecclesiastical court condemn Christ for his blasphemy. Now they bring him to Pilate, the Roman governor, to confirm the sentence of death. From hence it appears that Christ was the true Messiah, being sent into the world when the scepter was departed from Judea, according to that ancient prophecy of Jacob, Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. The Jews had no power absolutely to condemn any man or to put him to death, but this power the Roman emperor reserved to his own deputy. This contributed towards the fulfilling of our Savior's words, Matthew 20.19 that he should be delivered to the Gentiles and should be crucified, which was not a Jewish but a Roman punishment. Had the Jews put him to death, they had stoned him. But Christ was to be made a curse for us by hanging upon a tree, and accordingly the Jews executed the counsel of God, though they knew it not, by refusing to put him to death themselves. Learn hence how willing Christ was to undergo a shameful, painful, and accursed death that he might testify his love unto and procure a blessing for his people. Thus, the saying of Jesus was fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Verses 33 through 36. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again, and called Jesus, and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou these things of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. Pilate's ensnaring question, Art thou the king of the Jews? How jealous are great men of Jesus Christ, and how afraid are they of his kingdom, power, and authority, as if it would be prejudicial to their authority and power in the world, which was far enough from Christ's thoughts. Observe, too, the wisdom and caution of our Savior's answer. He neither affirms nor denies. Though whenever we speak we are bound to speak the truth, yet we are not bound at all times to speak the whole truth. Christ tells him, therefore, that upon the supposition that he was a king, yet that his kingdom was no earthly but a spiritual kingdom, he was no temporal king to rule over his subjects with temporal power on worldly pomp, but a spiritual king, in and over his church only, 
to order the affairs and look after the government thereof. Learn hence that Christ as God hath a universal kingdom of power and providence even over the highest of men, and as mediator hath a spiritual kingdom in and over his church. Two, that it is a clear evidence that Christ's kingdom is spiritual inasmuch as it's not carried on by violence and force of arms, as worldly kingdoms are, but by spiritual means and methods. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight for me. But now my kingdom is not from hence. Verse 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Burkett notes, Pilate asks him again directly and expressly, Art thou a king or not? Our Savior answers, Thou sayest that I am a king, and so it is indeed as thou sayest, I am a king, and the king of the Jews too, but not a temporal king to rule over them after the manner of earthly kings with temporal power and worldly pomp and splendor. But I am a spiritual king to rule and govern not only the Jews, but my whole church, consisting both of Jews and Gentiles, after a spiritual manner. Observe here, one, the dominion and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. He has a kingdom, my kingdom. Observe, two, the condition and qualification of this kingdom, negatively expressed. My kingdom is not of this world. Observe, three, the use and end of this kingdom, that the truth may have a place among the children of men for their salvation. To this end was I born, and came into the world, to bear witness unto the truth. Observe, four, the subjects of Christ's kingdom declared, everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. That is, everyone who is by divine grace disposed to believe and love the truth will hear and obey Christ's doctrine. Verses 38 through 40. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and said unto them, I find in him no fault at all. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Burkett notes, Observe here one, the question Pilate put to Christ. What is truth? A most noble and important question had it put forth with an honest heart with a mind fairly disposed for information and satisfaction. But it's evident Pilate's inquiry was not serious. Nay, it is generally thought that Pilate asked the question in scorn, contempt, and derision. For he stays not for our Lord's answer, but as soon as he started this query, went off the bench in haste. Learn hence that his question, what is truth, or how may we come to the knowledge of truth, is of unspeakable use and importance, and a question whereupon the whole frame and constitution of religion depends. Because truth is claimed by all parties of men, by all professors of religion. Ask the different parties, from the old gentleman at Rome to the poorest Quaker and Muglatonian, where is truth, and they will all tell you they are in possession of it. Every sect has thus much of property in it, that the professors of it think themselves infallible, and every one cries out, here is truth. But God has given us a twofold light to search for truth, namely, the light of reason and the light of scripture, or divine revelation. The former 
Solomon calls the candle of the Lord, set up in our breasts by God, on purpose to discover truth unto us. God allows us, yea, enjoins us, the free and impartial use of our understanding and judgments in order to the finding out of divine truth. But because nature's light, or the light of natural reason, is not clear and bright enough to give us a prospect of supernatural truths, for nature and reason can never dictate those things which depend only upon God's free grace and good pleasure, such as the doctrines of our Savior and Redeemer and the methods of man's salvation by the suffering of the Son of God. It had been blasphemy once to have supposed such things had not God revealed them in Scripture. Therefore, the second standard of divine truth is the infallible Word of God. The Gospel of Christ is the way and the truth. Truth came by Jesus Christ. And would men be ruled and conducted by the unalterable standards of truth, namely right reason and divine revelation, they would easily agree in their judgments what is to be believed, and all debates and controversy would vanish. Right reason and inspired scriptures are the best judges of controversy. They, being the fixed standard and measures of divine truth, can best resolve Pilate's questions here and tell us what is truth. Observe here how unwilling, how very unwilling, Pilate was to be the instrument of our Savior's death. He came forth three several times and tells the Jews that he finds no fault in him. He bids them take him and judge him according to their law. Pilate, a pagan, absolves Christ, while the hypocritical Jews that heard his doctrine and saw his miracles do condemn him. Observe 3. Pilate, having absolved Christ, I find no fault in him, endeavors next to release him, and takes occasion from their custom of having a prisoner released to them at their feast to insinuate his desire that they should choose Christ. Ye have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Observe lastly how the Jews prefer Barabbas, a robber, before the holy and innocent Jesus. They all cried out, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Learn hence that no persons, how wicked and vile soever, are so odious in the eyes of the enemies of God as Christ himself was, and his friends and followers now are. Christ did find it thus in his own person and went on earth. Barabbas, a robber, was preferred before him. And now he is in heaven, he suffers in his members, the filth of the world being preferred before them.